0: This is TechSnap, episode 392. Hello, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. This episode was recorded on December 12th, 2018. My name is Wes, and joining me this
1: week to surf the high seas of serverless, it's our captain, Chris Fisher. Hello Mr. Payne. Boy, don't we have so much to cover this week? Serverless is is uh, in there, but it's a new take on it. A local take of serverless. I am impressed with the amount of Kubernetes news that is coming out this week. As we record Kubacon is going on just down the street. And we're going to cover some of the biggest things that have come out that you probably need to know about. But if you need a primer on Kubernetes, like just some of the basics, we had Will Boyd, a training architect from Linux Academy, come on and really go through Kubernetes with us in episode... 385. There you go. So that's where you could start to get some basics. But this episode is going to bring you up to date on everything you need to know that's happening recently in Kubernetes, from news to security issues and more.
0: Well, with KubeCon in town, you just can't get away from all things Kubernetes. We were flying back from Texas, and we saw a bunch of Kubernetes ads in the airport of all places. That's why there were ads in the airport. Uh, That's right. You
1: yeah okay yeah I was I was out walking my dog and I walked right past an Istio workshop so (laughs) it's everywhere I've never I've never seen anything like it we're in the airport we're walking by this big billboard and it actually has like Kubernetes commands like command line commands yeah kubectl create (laughs) dash f and then a YAML file yes the real deal uh huh so yeah it's and this is the opportunity for anybody that's playing in this space to come out and really show off what they've got, or for a couple of big announcements to be made.
0: Oh, yeah. And right at the top, one of them you might have already heard about, etcd has now officially joined the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. You may be familiar
1: with that organization, spun off from the Linux Foundation. That seems like a big deal to me. etcd is a really neat project. For those of you that aren't familiar... It's a distributed key value store that provides a reliable way to store data across a cluster of machines. And it's, I think it came out of the CoreOS project originally, correct? Yes, it did. Yeah, and it it really acts as a source of truth for systems like Kubernetes. So to have it part of the Cloud Native Foundation is a pretty big announcement in itself. Really, in some ways, etcd is the heart of most
0: Kubernetes installations. Because if you're going to scale Kubernetes at all you're going to need somewhere to store all the information about the cluster and things running on it, and you're going to need to do that in a distributed way. And that's where etcd, its use of the Raft consensus protocol, and just you know having been around for a while, having been battle-tested now in a lot of bigger Kubernetes platforms, you can see etcd has a bright future. It's now in great company at the Cloud Native Computing Foundation as well, which is a vendor-neutral home for all of these yeah. integral projects that are building... The modern
1: cloud. And I think that's pretty important um, because you have teams from a bunch of different companies that are contributing now to etcd. Uh, AWS likes to boast about how they have quote dedicated maintainers of etcd on their team. So that's a big statement. And so moving into a cloud neutral position that's vendor neutral and cloud provider neutral is the best space for a really important project like this. I think.
0: You can also tell there's uh, more and more support behind that foundation. Capital One just joined as a gold user. So more money plowing in from all types. It's not just tech companies, it's banks too. Another announcement that caught my eye, Containus, the company behind Traffic, if, if you're not aware there, Chris, they've announced Traffic Enterprise Edition. And while that's not something I plan to be using, Traffic is a technology we've been using a little bit behind the scenes. Yeah, remind me about Traffic. I know we've used it. Traffic is, quote-unquote, the cloud-native edge router. But it performs all sorts of things, commonly like a reverse proxy. And it's something you put to take requests and route it to the right place. And this can be something as simple as just a, a web server you're running or dynamically adding and removing Docker containers or
1: Kubernetes pods. Right, 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 right. Now I remember. In fact, we were using it in place of something more traditional like Nginx. Exactly. That rings a bell. So, you know,
0: however you may feel about these sorts of additional things, there may end up being some private add-ons to traffic. I'm not sure how that's going to go. It does signal, though, that development will continue. Presumably, if people start paying for support for traffic, that's more funding to continue development.
1: There's really so many stories to pick from. We'll have a bunch linked. But storage is a common theme throughout this conference, and I saw Rook had some news around here. Yes they did. Rook
0: is the open source cloud native storage orchestrator for Kubernetes. It turns storage software into a self-managing, self-scaling and self-healing storage service. And in parts it's kind of an answered the question like I, I ran into trying to build a bare metal cluster and I'm you know you might already have a SAN or access to some sort of distributed storage system, but what if you don't? Rook lets you hook that in and then you can bootstrap let's say a Ceph cluster oh. on top of Kubernetes and then use that for storage in that same cluster or for another cluster. Huh. Okay. So you, yeah, you've got this sort of hyperconverged storage integrated into your cluster. And of course, Ceph is a very robust and well-like distributed file system and storage so- solution. So Rook having that as stable means now you've got two relatively battle-tested platforms. Rook, of course, is still pretty new. That's a storage is a complicated and important topic. Yeah, yeah. But there's but more the, and more solutions. You don't just have to use EBS volumes.
1: It, Rook itself is new, but it, the underlying technologies it's relying on seem to be tried and true. And that's the important thing. Exactly. Well, and if you had this one on your KubaCon bingo card, cross it off. Elastic officially has released alpha versions of Elasticsearch and Kibana Helm charts.
0: <laughs> and uh, you know, basically everyone has one, if not yep. <laughs> multiple Elasticsearch clusters out there. <laughs> and if you're using Kubernetes, well, there's also a good chance you're you're using Helm, which is basically the package manager for Kubernetes, right? So if you're already you're thrilled, Chris, I know, about how easy things like cockpit make it to run Docker containers mm-hmm. on your servers. Well, if you have a Kubernetes cluster, that's what Helm is for. Okay. They've had some big news too. They've now got the Helm
1: Hub. Yeah, Helm Hub has been introduced to KubaCon, and I'm guessing it sort of works in a way that I would be familiar with, say, Docker Hub works? In
0: many similar ways, yeah. So Helm was designed with distributed repositories in mind, right? So some, Ooh, something like, like you can have multiple repos, let's say, for apt if you want to. Yeah. Same thing for Helm. There have been basically the stable and incubator repositories where most people have gotten almost all of their software. And of course, with distributed things, Discoverability is almost always going to be a problem because it's great that you run your own little, you know, Helm platform. But how do I know? How do I know you've got all these great applications I could be using? That's where Helm Hub comes in. You can go to Helm Hub and check out a whole distributed universe of different platforms with their own repo- Helm repositories inside.
1: That's pretty neat. That's pretty neat that they're distributed like that. And so you could have, but you could, if you wanted to, then in theory, have your own private repository. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's nice and compelling. I like that a lot. Whenever we talk about serverless, I cringe a little bit, but that might all be changing now with Knative. Up until this point,
0: the serverless ecosystem has been dominated by major cloud players. So if you don't have an AWS account, well, you're not going to use their Lambda product, right? So it kind of it, it's an interesting architecture advancement or, or change anyway, but not everyone has able to take advantage of it. And if you're building your own hybrid cloud solution or maybe you just want to use multiple vendors, you either have to tie those systems together yourself. There are a couple existing solutions, but nothing that really tied well into Kubernetes. You could run things like OpenWhisk on top of Kubernetes. But now we've got Knative. And it's not not totally new, but this KubeCon, we saw a lot of big announcements from companies talking about it. It's kind of a buzz, and it seems like it's here to stay.
1: Mm. Yeah, serverless computing doesn't mean that there's work being done with no servers involved. That's not what that means. It's really just a high level of abstraction. And now it's, with Knative, it's available to really anybody with a Kubernetes setup. You can you can use, now explain this to me, you can use your Kubernetes setup to facilitate serverless style applications that could in theory also run somewhere else on the cloud that can run Kubernetes. So if you say spun up some DigitalOcean droplets using Kubernetes, you could potentially run that same code on that serverless infrastructure.
0: That's the idea, right? Having that portability yeah. would
1: be key, and that's one
0: area that Kubernetes itself, of course, is, is trying to advance, right? So you can bridge this across pl- cloud providers.
1: Right, so you could have your own systems or any cloud provider that you want. I love that, that's nice. So the Knative framework's built on top of Kubernetes and Istio, and so those
0: provide, provide you a container-based application runtime and advanced network routing capabilities. Knative ties all that together, and it's kind of got it, its own focuses things on building. So it's got this it's got support for helping build contained applications right there inside of it, serving and eventing. Serving, of course, lets you scale up, specify how all of your applications are going to get traffic in, how that all happens. Eventing is the other part of serverless that we've seen, and that's this sort of really, you can think of it as two areas. You've got the serverless part where you have this CPU. you have a machine that gets created for you, your application runs, and then it disappears when you're not using it. But the other part that a lot of people have been using to build applications is this mesh of various events, right? That's one of the great things about Lambda is just about everything on Amazon generates an event that you can consume in a Lambda. So you get this powerful
1: event-driven architecture. Knative wants to have that too. And the thing that seems pretty obvious is that this week's KubaCon in Seattle, Red Hat, IBM, SAP, and others are putting a lot of their marketing weight behind Knative, and they're baking it into their commercial offerings. In fact, IBM is enabling enterprises to install Knative in their IBM Cloud Kubernetes service already. Google's been offering it since July. SAP is making their Knative available in its SAP Cloud platform as part of their next big project release. It's coming everywhere, Wes. It, it is, and it's important to note that
0: Knative doesn't get us all the way to our super portable serverless dreams, but it is a good foundation. And of course, this is what a lot of developers want. right? You want to build simple function-based applications that have the flex- flexibility to move around and have declared a bunch of the dependencies about what they need from the environment and how they fit in in, in a large sea of distributed applications. Knative teaches Kubernetes and the Kubernetes platform some of those primitives. It's not
1: everything we need, but it's a step along the way. Well, you know everyone's excited when GitLab announces that they're going serverless. They, I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but GitLab somehow get into the serverless game.
0: And that was announced at uh, KubaCon as well. Well, Chris, it's partially based on Knative.
1: <laughs> of course, of course. It's all fun and games until we talk about the security, though. And Google's been doing a lot of work in this area to try to make their implementation of Kubernetes more secure and the project overall more secure. And it sort of starts with some basic principles, like securing what IP addresses can get to your Kubernetes dashboard and control areas. like Some of the basics that maybe we all should consider. On one hand, the story about some of the things Google's doing uh,
0: it's kind of light, you're like, oh, these are common sense. But it also underscores the the long range you have between the open source defaults and what it means to run something Mm. in production. And that's part of what you pay for when you do pay for one of these managed Kubernetes services, mm-hmm. so it's kind of interesting to peel back the curtain and see, like, well, just what are they doing? How much extra am I getting, or can I just hire a sysadmin to do this for me?
1: Well, when I read this, uh, what stood out to me is, uh, oh yeah, there's definitely a space for management services. Like Canonical just got in this area; they're they're trying to push hard their their Kubernetes offering, including you know full Ubuntu advantage coverage and even maintaining the Kubernetes instances that you set up yourself. But Google had a Different take on how to make their Kubernetes systems manageable. Um, They did something only Google could do.
0: Yeah, that's right. Kubernetes runs on top of Google's own operating system. It's a minimal operating system that's hardened and purpose-built. So you might think purpose-built means, okay, well, they probably got, maybe it's like a fork of Alpine that they've got that's popular with containers. Mm -hmm. Some sort of minimal system makes sense. No, you'd be wrong. It's
1: Google's Chromium OS. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the Chromebook OS uh, is what they're using to power their Kubernetes infrastructure. And uh, that either means that uh, Google's crazy or they have a ton of faith in Chrome OS. You know, there may be some things that make sense. You do want, you know,
0: Chromebooks need to be robust and, and not be able to be damaged easily by their end users. They've also got good support for updates. That's something you want to be rock solid, whether it's your laptop or your cloud.
1: That's true. And they do have the automatic updates on. So, and I guess if you have an issue with like the kernel or something, you can always just go upstairs and be like, um, hey, Bob, we need to fix this kernel problem. So there's some advantages there too. They've also got uh, something of a loss
0: leader in their container registry vulnerability service. Uh, I've seen some companies that are not super invested in Google Cloud use their container registry because they've done a decent job of automatically scanning images in there for vulnerabilities. They've put Mm. a lot of work into finding it on their own side. That's available to you, Joe Public
1: Consumer, as well. You know, that makes me think about that recent security vulnerability that I'm sure everybody's familiar with in Kubernetes. Where was their vulnerability scanner then, Wes?
0: Well, Chris, no system is perfect. Oh, okay.
1: And unfortunately, it does mean, you know, a lot of times
0: in Kubernetes, the burden is on the user to get it running. The the default yeah. configuration, as we'll see in
1: this next story, is often very vulnerable. Yeah, I think we all remember Monday, early December 3rd, when the Kubernetes world was rocked by a potentially high-security authentication bypass disclosure With very little details and a brand new release of Kubernetes that went gold master right around the same time. Everyone's head was spinning, a new CVE went live, and it was claimed to be a massive Kubernetes vulnerability. Oh yes, it was early that Monday, Wes. What happened? With an impact rating of critical and
0: a CVSS score of 9.8, you you can tell this is a big deal. It all started with an issue on GitHub. Proxy request handling in Kube API server can leave vulnerable TCP connections. The text of that issue gives us a little more detail. With a specially crafted request, users that are authorized to establish a connection through the Kubernetes API server to a background server can then send arbitrary requests over the same connection directly to that backend, authenticated with the Kubernetes API server's TLS credentials that were used to establish the backend connection. Now, that may not mean much to you because you probably don't have an in-depth understanding about how all of the interest, service, communication, authentication, and authorization takes place in Kubernetes. Most people don't. Let's get into that. It all starts in the Kube API server. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) The API server provides the REST API endpoint through which Kubernetes operations are made. It's most commonly used for things like kubectl. So you know when you're telling Kubernetes to, to create a new pod, or you're just trying to check on the status of things. It's also accessible by all pods by default. And that'll that'll become important later. Okay. Now, of course, access to the API server is secured with strong authentication and authorization mechanisms.
1: Yeah, maybe just to explain that a little further, in essence, authentication is used for securely identifying and trusting users usually with the tls certificate while authorization strategy determines who can do what i think that's an interesting and important distinction
0: yeah right because those are those are usually decoupled into, into two separate strategies rbac you know role based access controls is one thing you commonly see for a lot of authorization mm. systems mm. so that that gives a little context for this bug the bug allows an attacker who can send a legitimate authorized request to the api server to bypass the authorization In subsequent requests. So once you've gotten one authenticated, authorized request all the way through the system to the API server, you're good. You're trusted. Your
1: subsequent request
0: doesn't go through that same authorization logic. Right. Instead, it
1: goes directly to
0: the endpoint. Yeah, exactly. And that lets you escalate privileges to any user. Uh, Ah, oh. Now you can gain a little more enlightenment if you take a look at the pull request that actually fixes this issue, and uh, this is just a good interlude time here to go yay open source, right? I mean, we can all we can all poke and investigate and see this out in the open. What a what a different world from the '90s. Looking at that fix, you can see that it, the faulted code was in upgrade aware or upgrade aware handler. Now you might be wondering, upgrade. Okay, what are they what are they talking about here? Well. The problem is that the Kubernetes API isn't just basic HTTPS. To support remote administrative tasks, Kubernetes also allows upgrading API server connections to full, real, end-to-end web sockets. Adding on to this, the handler only serves as a proxy because it actually passes all valid requests up to an API aggregation layer, which then routes each of those requests to the appropriate actual underlying API server. Where the problem came in, and the the actual flaw in the logic of this handler code, is that when an HTTP request with an HTTP upgrade header was sent, so that's a connection with a header saying, hey, upgrade me to a WebSocket connection, assuming it was an authorized request to the requested object, it would then be passed to the aggregation server by the handler. Unfortunately, even if the returned response did not contain the HTTP code that says, Switching protocols, that's code 101. That's what you get when you're going to switch and upgrade back to the WebSocket connection. Even when you didn't have that header, the response would be sent to the client and the proxy connection to the internal server would still be established, just as if the connection really was upgraded to use WebSockets. And then, because you've got a WebSocket connection, the proxy handling code doesn't do any more authorization requests. So any subsequent requests sent over that WebSocket connection that you've just upgraded,
1: well, they're not checked. All right, Wes. Double check my homework here, but it seems if I'm following along, an attacker could send an authorized request to the API server with uh, HTTP upgrade headers, and then continue sending any HTTP request on the same TCP socket, which would bypass authorization control. Yes, exactly. So, so long as that first request was
0: authorized by by something, you know, so that the first time they sent that request through to whatever service it happened to be requesting. And that was, they were authorized for it. Okay, now they've got this connection established. No other requests, even if it's to a different back-end service, are going to be checked for authorization. So the fix involved checking the response code from the response from the internal server and then prevent the creation of a proxy connection if you didn't actually upgrade to WebSocket. So mm. that's pretty simple. It should have yeah. been there in the first place.
1: Yeah, Right, so to successfully pull this off, you had to be authorized um, and you... Couldn't do this unless you successfully authorized at least once, so everything's good. Problem solved, no issue. Yes, okay, so
0: if you've, you know, in an ideal scenario, you've got a really robustly configured Kubernetes cluster, maybe you're all right. Unfortunately, the default configuration really helps the attacker. Oh. By default, the RBAC configuration allows any user to perform discovery calls against any aggregated API server. These discovery calls allow any user or pod with access to the API to check for the availability of aggregated API servers. Likewise, anonymous requests are also enabled by default, allowing anyone with access to the API endpoint to send valid, unauthenticated requests. So with the default configuration, an attacker with access to the API server from outside or inside a pod could use this vulnerability to escalate privileges to any user in the
1: scope of an aggregated API server with no additional prerequisites. And to make things a little trickier, it turns out since Kubernetes 1.8, when the metric server is deployed by default, when you use that kubeup.sh shell script that's pretty pretty well known online, it's linked everywhere, uh, that sets up its own aggregate API system that is vulnerable. And so by using this vulnerability with a discovery call, you could escalate privileges and leak information about the whole cluster from any pod. So. Your server, I suppose, would be one of those pods?
0: Uh, yeah, or you've accidentally let one of your new developers have access to the production cluster, and he uploaded a pod without pushing it through the regular container. Hmm. Vulnerability scanning, it's vulnerable, hijacked. Well, now it can escalate its access and get information about your entire cluster.
1: Mm-hmm. But just to be clear, if I've gone through and I've disabled anonymous access everywhere, I should be okay. Unfortunately, no.
0: Ugh. Now, of course, disabling anonymous access... Is a good security move, and you should probably be doing it anyway. But the bug is still exploitable by authenticated users. If any Kubernetes API user, e.g., any kubectl user, is allowed to exec into a pod, even restricted pods, they could use this exploit to go hop into another pod and use that access. Maybe they get into your control plane, right? Then they use the controller's credentials to deploy additional privileged pods. Really, this this vulnerability allows some level of privilege escalation within the cluster. That depends on your
1: particular configuration, but no privilege escalation is good. Okay, well at this point, everyone's probably wondering, so let's just ask, how can we tell if we're vulnerable to this or not?
0: One benefit, actually, of the enormous popularity of Kubernetes is, well, there's a ton of tests already put out. We'll have some linked. Basically, there's handy utilities you can run. If you have access to a live production cluster, you've got kubectl working, go check these out run them, it'll just tell you yes or no, are you vulnerable. And pretty much all the major lines and distributions have patches, so go do your updates too. If you've stayed with us through the whirlwind of Kubernetes news and security breaches... Thank you. That brings us to the end of today's TechSnap episode.
1: Yeah, we have some things we want to share with you, a couple of housekeeping items in regards to the show. Let's start with Crossplane. This is really neat. Crossplane.io if you want to check it out. But essentially, it's a multi-cloud control panel. It introduces workload and resource abstractions on top of
0: existing managed services so you can have workload portability across cloud providers.
1: Yeah, I guess it must just be interfacing with the individual cloud provider's APIs. So as these cloud providers have more and more robust APIs to do stuff, this in theory, Crossplane, gets more and more functionality. One thing that I think is pretty neat, it might make it worth the listener's time out there, is it has a workload scheduler that can move your workload around clouds depending on the cloud's reliability or the cost. So that's something that's pretty neat. It can even factor in like the AWS cost or the region it needs to be in, or performance of the system while deploying certain workloads. Like that's a really neat kind of scheduler to take all that stuff into account.
0: It seems like there's a lot of operational things built in, like a clean separation of concerns between developers and administrators. So developers can define workloads without having to worry about all those, you know, which cloud it runs on or what it has access to. Administrators can define environment specifics and policies around, you know, how much that development team is allowed to spend this month.
1: And it is indeed open source. It's an Apache 2 license. And of course, to get us in the holiday spirit,
0: we've got an advent calendar for you. No, it's not filled with chocolate. It's filled with security tips. (laughs) That's security.Christmas. Click there and then every day until Christmas, you'll find a, a nice little tailored article talking about
1: things like injection attacks or error messages and information leakage. And I suddenly am trying to come up with my own .Christmas domain. That's awesome. Security.Christmas. And the advent calendar opens up a new box each day.
0: Yeah. It's just a, you know, it's a it's a quick little security snack you can use to catch up on some sort of security-related information.
1: Well, so some housekeeping for the TechSnap program. As we approach the new year, we're doing a few new things with the show. Number one is I'll be stepping down uh, and be replaced by someone that we haven't announced yet. But it's all set up. I mean, we could announce it. It's it's uh, somebody that's going to be great at this job, and uh, I can't wait for you guys to re meet them when they when they sit down again. Uh, and it's somebody who's been on before in the past. Uh, it's not somebody who's been a permanent host ever before, or anything like that. So being vague intentionally, so that way we can make a fun announcement out of it. But we've been in we've been in our uh, closed doors production meetings, uh, figuring out new ideas for the show in the new year, and there's a lot that uh, the guys have in the works. It's going to be good. The show's just going to get even better. It's going
0: to be great. What are you saying, Chris? Come on.
1: I'm looking forward to it, and now I'll have uh, a great show to listen to when I'm commuting again. You know, it's hard to listen to it. Like, I do make myself listen back to some of the shows, but I pick one show a week, and I listen back to it. It's just not sustainable. The ones that I'm on. Well, you know, with that comes a new responsibility. We're going to need your
0: feedback. At <laughs> dot .systems slash contact. Buddy. You'll be getting
1: it. You'll be getting it. Yeah. In fact, everybody out there, send in your war stories, uh, cool tools, um, anything like that, or questions for us. We love those too, especially when we can help solve some problems. You want us
0: to deep dive into a topic? We're ready.
1: Yeah, also, links to everything we've talked about, including some additional resources from Cubicon and announcements, can be found at techsnap.systems slash 392, and get subscribed if you're not already, because there is a ton in the works for the TechSnap program, techsnap.systems slash subscribe. Thank you so much for
0: joining us on today's episode of the TechSnap program.
1: And we'll see you next week.